Thanks, Ted. Good morning. Uh, it really is a privilege for me to be able to share God's Word with you today. I'm praying that Mark's message for us will be clear and that Jesus will be magnified by the preaching of His Word. We're continuing today in our study through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we'll be focusing on chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with us uh, right now. If you're using one of the blue Bibles uh, in the seat back in front of you, that will be on page 489 uh, that you'll find this passage. Before we get into the Word, let's talk about movies. I like movies. I've seen lots and lots of movies in my day. It's one of the byproducts of being old, more than I can count. Uh, when I think about the movies that I like best, uh, I find that often they have one thing in common. They have a really clearly defined good guy and a really clearly defined bad guy. You know, uh, in the early, uh, mo most forms of story do. Plays, novels, TV shows, most forms of story have this good guy, bad guy dynamic. In the early days of silent films, because there was no sound, they would typically show the good guy wearing a white hat in westerns and the bad guy wearing a black hat, just so you know, starting off, who is who. Sometimes the good guy isn't just one guy and sometimes it's not a guy at all. But you get what I'm saying. You know who you're supposed to root for. You know who you're supposed to identify with. And you know who's pretty sure who's the enemy and who's supposed to win in the end. We tend to like our stories that way. Why is that? Why do we like that? And why do we sometimes get frustrated when stories aren't clear on these concepts? I think there's a couple of things going on. Uh, that can help us explain this phenomenon that I hope will be relevant to our passage today. First, we all have deep down uh, an inborn sense of right and wrong, of fair and unfair, of just and unjust. This comes, I believe, from the fact that we're created in God's image and that we reflect Him in small, imperfect, sin-marred ways. But that's a topic for another day. The second reason I think we like stories with this good guy, bad guy dynamic is that we all view ourselves instinctively as basically good. So we identify with the good guy, with the hero. We're predisposed to view the world through this good versus bad lens. And of course, I'm always on the side of good. Even when I do things wrong, even th when I do things that I know are wrong, I can still find a way to convince myself that I'm still a good guy and that just in this particular instance, I made a mistake or I made a bad choice. Our perception of what good really is, of what righteousness is, is just badly distorted by sin. So what does it actually mean to be good or to be righteous? Who is righteous and who is not? Well, in Mark 2, 13 through 17, we're going to see that Jesus radically challenged the notions of righteousness and sin 
that were common in his day, and as it turns out, in ours too. So let's read that passage together. He, Jesus, went out beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming after him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So who are the good guys and the bad guys in this story? Well, if we read even just a little bit of any of the Gospels, we see that we usually find Jesus in opposition to Jewish leaders. Scribes, priests, Pharisees, Sadducees. So we're drawn to the conclusion that the scribes of the Pharisees here must be the bad guys. Even though they would define themselves as the good guys. So if the Pharisees are the bad guys, then the tax collectors and sinners must be the good guys in this story because they're on the other side. But they're defined in the story as sinners. You can see how confusing this could be. By associating himself with known sinners and challenging these righteous scribes, Jesus is deliberately trying to tell us something. But we'll come back to that. There, there are four types of people in this, other than Jesus that are in this narrative. A little background on each type of person might be helpful in our understanding of what Mark is trying to show us. In this paragraph, we find tax collectors, of which Levi is one, sinners, scribes of the Pharisees, and disciples. Four types. Let's take them one at a time. Tax collectors in Jesus' day would have been known throughout the Roman Empire, really, as notoriously corrupt. They were commonly mentioned in the same breath with murderers and bandits. This negative view of tax collectors was especially strong among the Jews. They would have assumed that a Jew who became a tax collector was at best an extortionist, a traitor to his own people, a Roman collaborator. If he was one of the good ones, Tax collectors were despised. Roman tax collection worked kind of like this. Some Roman official would be given responsibility for collecting taxes for a given territory. And he, but he would farm out the actual collecting of the money to someone local. So there might be several men bidding for the right to collect taxes for a city like Capernaum. The Rome, this Roman official would then give the job of tax collector to the highest bidder. 
This guy would then collect as much as he possibly could get away with, pay the Romans what he promised them, and keep the rest for himself. So you can see tax collectors would have been highly motivated to cheat and overcharge taxpayers. The more they collected, the more profit they made. In Levi's case, he is probably collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, who's the ruler of the territory where Capernaum was. But the system for collecting taxes was the same because Herod ruled at the discretion of and in collaboration with Rome. When a Jew like Levi became a tax collector, he became an outcast of society. He was excommunicated from the synagogue and he, his family was disgraced. So tax collectors were definitely bad guys. The next group we've identified in the story are called sinners. The word sinner used here was a term used by very religious people, to like the Pharisees, to describe those who were likely immoral, but certainly ritually unclean. The term sinner here is not meant to convey any particular kind of sin, but rather a general ungodly way of life. These are outcasts of society who are making little or no attempt to follow all the rules that would have been required to be considered righteous. They were non-religious people. They were not tax collectors, but they weren't really trying to keep the law either, especially not the way the Pharisees would have said they should. By the standards of that day, these people too would have been considered bad guys. On the other side of our story, we have scribes. <laughs> scribes were theologians and lawyers. They were highly educated, highly skilled, experts in scripture and Jewish law. Their job was to make copies, to transcribe by hand the scriptures. This was a highly respected and prestigious profession. In this paragraph, they're called scribes of the Pharisees. That's because not all scribes were Pharisees, but these particular scribes also happened to belong to the Jewish sect called Pharisees. Well, what's a Pharisee? The word Pharisee actually meant separated one. See, they, they so, were so strongly committed to avoiding contact with sinners that they actually called themselves the separated ones. Pharisees believed that the only way to achieve righteousness before God was, to be, was by ritual purity and separation from sinners. What is ritual purity? Well, the Pharisees in Jesus' day would have defined ritual purity as outward, visible observance of the law. Not only the written law in the Old Testament, but also the oral law that had been passed down to them through the years, through generations of oral tradition. These oral traditions had come to be seen by Pharisees as equal in authority to the written Scripture. And Pharisees observed these traditions passionately. 
Most people in that day would have seen Pharisees as good guys. They certainly saw themselves that way. And the last group mentioned here are disciples. Disciples simply means follower, and in this case, followers of Jesus. Of course, we think of them as good guys. Now that we have a better idea of who everyone was, let's look again at what actually happened. Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. The Levi described here is called Matthew in the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew. It seems that he had two names in the same way that Simon was also called Peter. In any event, when we read that Jesus called this guy, we might be tempted to think, if Jesus called him, he must must have seen something good in him, something that others couldn't see, even though he seems really bad. I mean, why would Jesus call a guy to be one of his special chosen 12 unless he was good? Maybe really deep down. Levi was not good deep down. Levi was not misunderstood. He was not a victim of society. He was not basically a good man who had made some bad choices in life and was trying to get his act together. No. Mark doesn't give us any hint of any of that. Levi chose to be a tax collector. He chose to be an outcast. He chose to be a traitor to his own people. Why would anyone do that? Well, you could make lots and lots of money being a tax collector. The fact that this man was willing to forsake his family, his community, his own reputation for worldly gain tells you exactly what kind of man this was. And everyone knew what he was. He wasn't pretending to be anything else. Yet this is the man Jesus called to follow him. Here Levi was, actively fleecing people in his booth when Jesus walks by. Everyone who was there that day would have been astounded when Jesus stopped and walked over to that booth and called Levi to follow him. And they would have been even more amazed that Levi followed. Luke's account of the same event tells us that Levi left everything to follow Jesus. Think about what he'd given up to become a tax collector. And now he's giving up everything that goes with that to follow Jesus. What, what caused change, this change in Levi, this radical change? Why did he follow? Mark tells us that Levi followed because Jesus called him. It was the grace of Jesus that enabled Levi to see his own sin clearly, grace that enabled him to repent, and grace that enabled him to set his hope in Jesus and follow him. Grace alone. Think about this fact. 
If Jesus had not called him, Levi, Matthew, would never have sought Jesus out on his own. Levi's only qualification for being a disciple was that he was a verifiable sinner called by grace. Jesus called Levi to show his power and his grace, not because Levi deserved it. What's what's the first thing Levi does after he begins to follow Jesus? Well, Mark tells us that the first thing he did was to invite Jesus over to his house for a dinner party to celebrate and to introduce Jesus to all of his low-life friends, tax collectors and sinners all. Look at verse 15 again. And he reclined at table in his house, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Here we have a picture of Jesus reclining at a table with many people who would have been considered by any standard of the day the dregs of society. Why is Jesus doing this? That's the very question the scribes are going to ask his disciples. Jesus knew that his behavior was scandalous. He knew the Pharisees were watching too. To to have dinner with a person in Jesus' day to recline at table with them, was to join in fellowship with them, to even show approval of that person. To all of the sinners there that day, at that dinner, they fully understood Jesus was offering them friendship in a way that no one else would have. He's deliberately being provocative. He's creating a spectacle By that I mean he's creating a situation designed to attract attention. Does he have your attention? Now, knowing a little bit of how the Pharisees think and what they believed about sinners, try to imagine for a moment their shock, their bewilderment, the outrage and offense that they took at this spectacle. They could not understand why Jesus would be willing to, to defile himself by associating with known, unrepentant, unclean lawbreakers. The irony is, the only person who had any right to be offended by the sinfulness of sinners was Jesus. But he is not repelled by sin. He draws close to sinners. The problem for the scribes is that their view of reality was completely wrong. Jesus was confronting them with the difference between what they thought was true and what was actually true. They thought, those people are sinners and we are righteous. We need to be separate from them to maintain our righteousness. We've worked really hard to achieve this level of righteousness, 
And we're not going to give that up for anybody. In reality, the tax collector, the sinner, the scribe, and the disciple are all the same. All sinners desperately, hopelessly in need of a Savior. When Jesus looked around that day, he did not see a really wretched, sinful guy over here, uh, a fairly sinful guy here. This guy's pretty good, and that guy's fairly righteous. That's not what he saw. He looked around, and he saw sinners, all the same, dead in their sin, in need of being given spiritual life by his grace. The The Pharisee's concept of sin and righteousness, like ours tends to be, was wrong. There are no degrees of sin in God's eyes. It's not a spectrum from obscenely unrighteous to fairly righteous. That's not the way it is. Human beings without Christ are all dead in sin. Dead is dead. One corpse is not more dead than another. So it turns out that Jesus is the only good guy in the story because he alone is righteous. Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Jesus is the righteous one. Because he alone is God and man, fully God, fully man at the same time. He's the only one capable of righteousness. Yes, people can do good things. Even people who don't know God do good things. But you and I cannot become righteous in the sight of God by what we do. Only God's grace through Jesus Christ can make the unrighteous righteous. The Pharisees' biggest problem was not that they were hypocrites, though they certainly were. It wasn't that they were trying to keep the law to obtain righteousness. Their biggest problem was that they could not see their own need. Their blindness to their sinfulness prevented them from seeing Jesus for who He was. Their only hope The scribes confronted Jesus and asked, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Let's look again carefully at Jesus' response to that question in verse 17. And when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, first notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He didn't say, No, you're wrong. These people are not sinful. They're good guys. Jesus didn't say that. He knows they're sinful. He agrees with the Pharisees that the people he's eating with are sinful. His response to these offended scribes has two parts. The first part is a proverb Jesus uses to illustrate his compassion for sinners. And the second part is a blunt announcement of his purpose. First, Jesus said, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, was Jesus saying that the scribes were well, in no need of healing, that they really were righteous? No, not at all. Jesus is using irony here. Those who are well in this proverb are those who believe they are well, even though they're sick. You know, a person who doesn't think he's sick doesn't go to the doctor, even if he is sick. Well, those who know they're sick gladly receive the attention of a physician. The emphasis of the proverb is to show why Jesus would draw close to sinners. It's because he's the only one who can bring healing. He's the physician. Where else should he be but with sinners? Jesus called sinners, while they are still unrighteous, to repent and believe. The good news, to put their hope in his righteousness alone and not in their own. If any sinner will put their trust in him, he will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Jesus was willing to be physically in the presence of sin in this instance because he knew that he alone could and would remove their sin from those who would follow him. The day was coming shortly when Jesus would actually become our sin on the cross for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. He, God, made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're here this morning and you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you can find yourself in this story. You're either like the sinners and tax collectors who know they're sinners, who know they're unrighteous before God, or you're like the scribes who believe they're fine the way they are in no need of change. So either way, the truth is all people are sinners in need of a redeemer. If you're in the sinner tax collector camp, what you need to hear from God's word today is that Jesus came to call people just like you. You don't need to clean yourself up first before trusting him. If Jesus is calling you to repent and believe, you can do that today, just as you are. If you will repent of your sin and believe in, put your trust in Jesus as Lord, he will forgive your sin and give you his righteousness. If you're in the scribes, I'm just fine the way I am camp, I think God has brought you here today to hear this truth. Your greatest need is to realize that you are a sinner, just like the rest of us, and that you need to be rescued from God's wrath, the wrath you deserve because of your sin. It may be that Jesus is calling you today, right now, to repent and follow him in faith.
If you find yourself in either of those situations, I would love to talk to you after the service about how you could follow Jesus. Many in the room would be willing to do the same. For those of us here who have responded to the call of Jesus, who are following him, we are the disciples. Not the righteous, but the disciples. Only Jesus is righteous. We have been saved by grace alone. A disciple is just a sinner called to follow Jesus, like Levi. It is the sinfulness of sinners that draws Jesus to them. If there's any righteousness found in us, it's because Christ, we are in Christ. It is His righteousness alone, and He deserves all the glory and praise for it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be reminded by this passage that we are still called to trust, called to repent and trust in Jesus every day. We need the gospel continually. I need the gospel every day. Repentance and faith are the ongoing marks of what it means to follow Jesus. Is that what you see when you look at yourself and the way you follow Jesus? Repent and trust, repent and trust. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looked like for Levi. That's what it should look like for us. Church, there are a couple more points of application for us in this story. First, in this account, we find that the joy and gratitude that Levi felt for the grace he had received, prompted him to bring his friends to Jesus. One of the byproducts of my being reminded of what Jesus has done for me should be that same joy, that same gratitude, and that same desire to tell people the good news of Jesus. The desire to share with others is driven by the gratitude and joy that we, that we feel the grace that he's given us. Second, we see in the story that no one is too sinful, too far gone to be outside of the reach of Jesus. His compassion draws him to the worst of sinners. Uh, theologian R.C. Ryle said this, without a divine call, no one can be saved. We are all so sunk in sin, so wedded to the world, that we should never turn to God and seek salvation unless He first called us by His grace. God must speak to our hearts by His Spirit before we ever speak to Him. He often chooses those who seem most unlikely to do His will and furthest off from His kingdom. He draws them to himself with almighty power, breaks the chains of old habits and customs, and makes them new creatures. As Dr. Mead showed us so well last week, Jesus proved that he had the authority to forgive sin. Now he declares his intention and desire to call sinners to repentance while they're still repentance, while they're still sinners. It's, it's likely... Uh, that that day by the seashore, seashore, 
Peter, Andrew, James, and John all knew who Levi was. They lived in Capernaum. They fished at the Sea of Galilee. It's also likely that he was no friend of theirs. They may have even paid taxes to him personally. Imagine how they felt when Jesus started to walk toward that tax booth. Not that guy. Imagine how they felt when Jesus called them, called him, Levi, to join them as followers of Jesus. God forbid that that be our reaction for anyone. When the disciples, what the disciples learned that day was that Jesus will rescue even those that we wouldn't have. Brothers and sisters, may we be reminded of that same truth. How easy is it for us still, knowing that we are saved by grace, to lapse into convincing ourselves that somehow I really deserved to be saved? That we really are the good guys after all. We are not. What did, what did Jesus show us about righteousness and sin through these things he did and said that day? Well, he showed us that no one is righteous except him and that all the rest of us are sinners. The bottom line is only God's grace through Jesus Christ can make the unrighteous righteous. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are following you, who have responded to your call, we are so grateful that you reached down and saved us while we were your enemy. Father, help us to continue to follow your call every day to, to repentance and faith in you anew every day. Lord, if there are any here who at one point in their life have committed their life to you but don't find themselves following you now. I pray, pray that you would remind them that this is the way to follow you, to repent and, repent and trust you every day and to keep following you. Lord, help us as a church to help each other continue to follow you. Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, we pray that they would hear your call this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.